If you're enjoying History's Greatest Cities, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello. And welcome to History's Greatest Cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan. And in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sites of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together, we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations, conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness. And we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Pragya Vora, lecturer in medieval history at the University of York, who specialises in the social and cultural history of the Viking Age British Isles and Scandinavia. With her deep knowledge of York and particularly its Viking heritage, Pragya will share new perspectives on the history of this city that has undergone so many transformations through the centuries. Together we'll explore its Roman foundations, its Saxon and Viking periods, the economic and cultural flourishing in the Middle Ages and its development as a modern city. We'll also meet some of the figures who played pivotal roles in the story of York and discover less known places to visit for insights into its heritage. Pragya, welcome. Thank you, Paul. Perhaps you could start by telling us a little about your connection to York and what you find so fascinating about the city. York has been my home for well over two decades now. And the main fascination for me as a Viking Age historian is the medieval city. It was in the medieval period, the main city of the north, arguably at one point the capital of the Anglo-Scandinavian empire that stretched across the North Sea. And it has this wonderful, deep history that I find absolutely fascinating. To this day, I cannot walk past York Minster without just gazing up in awe at it. So it's that sense of, of history and living among historical figures, living within history, that really makes York for me. Well, let's, let's step right back to before recorded history. What do we know about the prehistoric inhabitants of this region of what's now northern England? The area we now call York has a long history of human settlement and human activity. York sits at the confluence of the rivers Ouse and Foss in the Vale of York. We have evidence of settlement in the Vale of York, particularly on the higher ridges in and around the Vale, going all the way back to the Mesolithic period. Whether or not this was just people living in temporary settlements or 
permanent settlements, we're not entirely sure. Permanent settlement, as far as we can tell, begins in the Neolithic, so roughly about 4000 to 2000 BC. The University of York campus actually sits on a ridge that had Neolithic and Bronze Age settlements. We've got the York Horde, which was found in 1868, and this is a truly remarkable stash of Neolithic flint tools and weapons. And the fact that these are so high quality suggests that it was probably considered a treasure and and therefore kept buried for safekeeping. This is currently on display at the Yorkshire Museum, if anyone would like to go and visit. Similarly, we've got Bronze Age implements, beakers, very, very distinctive pottery. All of this recovered from settlements in and around the Vale of York. The excavation at the University of York is is particularly interesting to me because we've got, among a whole load of other things, the oldest preserved brain from uh, roughly about two and a half thousand years ago. It's incredibly rare for tissue matter to survive in the soil, but we actually have this brain that was found in its skull during these excavations. It's uh, unfortunately not on display anywhere for anyone to see, but it does date back to the Iron Age. So people have been living here, people have been living in and around York for millennia by this point. So of course the the recorded history of York famously begins with the arrival of the Romans. Can you tell us about their arrival and how the city was founded? So when we come to roughly about AD 71, that's when we have the Romans come to York. They haven't really bothered with this part of the world that much up until now. They've dominantly been interested in their southern provinces. But we've got settlement of what are possibly a loose confederation, really, of Celtic tribal groups called the the Brigantes. And it's really to resolve issues with the Brigantes that the Roman governor of, of Britain, Quintus Petilius Cyrillius, he decides to lead his troops northwards from Lincoln and arrives in the area in, a, in an attempt to deal with problems that the Romans have been having with the Brigantes. And what they find when they come to this particular area, to the Vale of York, is this absolutely perfect site for a fortress. It's bounded by two rivers. There's hardly any settlement it's largely empty. It was strategically easily defensible, a good position to be in. The Ouse was a navigable river at the time, and so it offered access to the North Sea. There's also ease of land transport. So, I mean, the main route that comes into York, even today, the A64, is pretty much the route that the Romans used. It's also potentially probably. It also lay in a sort of neutral place between the Brigantes and another tribe, their neighbours, the Parisii. And so again, the Romans are situating themselves in a position where they can keep an eye on and control the lands around them, as it were. And so the original fortress that they build is earth and timber. It's on the north side of the Ouse. And in many ways, it does form the basis for what we currently have as York City Centre. So if you sort of superimpose the map of the Roman fortress onto the, the map of York today, you'll see many of the same roads, you'll see many of the same entryways or gates or portus, as the Romans called them. And similarly, as the importance of the fortress of York grows. There's also a civilian settlement on the opposite bank of the river. Again, you can see much of the footprint of that civilian settlement in in York today. And then when we get to about the year 120, that's when the 9th Legion, which was the original legion that came to the area, is replaced by the 6th. And a lot of York, the fortress of York, as well as the civilian settlement, is rebuilt in stone, which is again a sign of York's increasing importance to the Roman Empire. So now we have this increasingly important settlement, Eboracum, founded two or three decades after the Roman invasion, and it's grown to become an important administrative centre, of course, as well as a military centre in the north of what was England. And that 
goes on for two or three hundred years, presumably. How did York evolve over that period and, and how did, or Eboricum, I believe the Romans called it, how did that period come to an end? York or Ibaracum goes from strength to strength in the centuries that follow. We have a number of emperors associated with the city. Hadrian comes to the city during the course of his travels around uh, Britannia and eventually the, the beginnings of the constructions of the famous Hadrian's Wall. Septimius Severus comes to York along with a huge retinue of civil servants and soldiers including the Praetorian Guard, his wife, Julia Adomna, their sons, Carcalla and Geta. And so this is a massive imperial presence in the city of York. Severus, usefully, is also the first emperor to die in York. There's two of them, but Severus is the first one. He dies in February 211. And after, as is sort of fairly common in the Roman Empire, a bloody succession that all takes place in Rome, his son Carcalla becomes emperor. But it's under him that Ibaracum gets named as the capital of northern Britain. And it also gains the highest status that a city could have in the Roman Empire. It becomes a colonia. So York is expanding and becoming more important under these emperors. The Yorkshire Museum actually houses a very distinctive type of pottery called a head pot. And one of them is likely modelled on Severus's wife, Julia Domna. So you can actually come and see that in the city itself. So as I said, um, there were two emperors that died at York. <laughs> the next one to die was Constantius, the emperor Constantius, who died in York in July 306. So roughly about 100 years later. Constantius himself was not that important for York, but what is more important is the person who accompanied him, and that was his son, Constantine. Um, at the time, there was a very particular system of succession among Caesars at York, but the troops in York named Constantine as the emperor, and this was a pivotal moment in Roman imperial history. What followed was the unification of the Roman Empire under a single ruler. Constantine was an incredibly impressive individual, both militarily as well as politically. And he, within a few decades, he had established himself, extended his power, restored stability to the Roman world, and significantly he supported Christianity and allowed Christians to worship freely in the Roman Empire. Um, in 313, he issued an edict on religious tolerance, and by 314, Ibaracum had its first bishop. Constantine, even though he didn't really spend very much time in York, his actions had a really big impact on the development of York. So we've gone from being a military fortress, to being an administrative centre, to being a city that plays host to emperors, to now being a key ecclesiastical centre of the Roman Empire. So you'll find Constantine all over York. He's part of York's history, lots of buildings and streets named for him. Constantine has this real connection with York that is still visible in the city today. This is the, the heyday, if you like, of Roman York in, in the early 4th century. But of course, the Roman Empire and Roman influence in Britain wasn't to last. And a century later, everything had changed. How did York fare after the, the fall of the Roman Empire and the withdrawal from Britain? Not particularly well. What we have in this heyday, as you say, is an incredible city with stone structures, defences, a number of th which you can see today in sort of, you know, the multi-angular tower, foundations of walls under cafes in York and the remains of the Roman Basilica in the undercroft of York Minster. There's a bathhouse um, that you can still see, the remains of the Caldarium, you can still see it, it's underneath the Roman bath pub. So this absolutely wonderful, flourishing city seems to go quiet after the withdrawal of Roman troops in roughly about 400. Through the 4th century, it's still 
remains a, a military base. The city was home to the Dux Britanniorum, so the Duke of Britain. However, there is a decline. We see the population shrinking, trade declining, buildings being abandoned. It's not all doom and gloom. York is still functioning. There is archaeological evidence for the continued settlement of people near the ooze. Private Roman houses, especially the suburban villas, continued to be occupied. But the main fortress of York is very much in decline after the Roman army leaves in the year 400. Whether or not York continues to be an important settlement in the, the sort of period of flux between the withdrawal of the army and the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons is uncertain. There are allusions in documents that are perhaps less trustworthy than we might want to the potential existence of a kingdom around the city of York, but it's, it's all very fuzzy and murky history, basically. I guess famously that period has become known as the Dark Ages more because of the lack of evidence than because nothing was happening. What we do know, of course, is that York was an Anglo-Saxon settlement as well. What do we know about that period? So we've got Anglo-Saxons settling in the area as early as the 5th century. We've got cemeteries that are identifiably Anglian that date from this period. We've got cremation cemeteries from the 6th century. A, a lot of what we found is outside where the Roman fortress used to be. So how much the Anglo-Saxons used the fortress in the early settlement phase, we're not entirely sure. But from about the year 600, York starts to become important again. It is established as the capital of the Kingdom of Deira, and the, that's, the, well, that's the early Anglo-Saxon kingdom here. And then when this kingdom unites with it, the neighbouring kingdom of Benicia, forming the much larger, much more powerful and significant kingdom of Northumbria, York is part of th that movement. It is one of the two capitals of Northumbria. The Anglo-Saxon settlement is called Ethelwich. The witch settlements in the Anglo-Saxon period tend to be commercial centres. So this witch element of the name gives us a clue as to what York is, what is happening in York at this time. By the early 7th century, it's an important royal centre for the Northumbrian kings. When the Roman church sends its mission to re-establish Christianity in Britain, Paulinus of York, who eventually becomes Saint Paulinus, establishes his church here. It's, it's one of the first places where the renewed church is established, um, and this becomes the precursor to what is now York Minster. In uh, 627, Edwin of Northumbria, the King of Northumbria, is baptised in this church in York, and the first stone minster is believed to have been built by Edwin himself. So it's an important royal and ecclesiastical centre. It's the seat of a bishop, which is the first one is, is Paulinus, and then after Christianity develops eventually and becomes the seat of an archbishop. So York is on the up once more through this early Anglo-Saxon period. And by the time we get to the 7th century, York is very much sitting at the top with London. London and York are fairly equal in, in status, along with a couple of other places like Canterbury. And of course, the next couple of centuries, the city does very well, but that changes with the arrival of another group of people from across the North Sea, the Vikings. How did the Vikings arrive in the northeastern York and how did that affect the city? So the earliest Viking raids we have in Britain date to the attack on Lindisfarne in 793. At this time, the Vikings are... Scandinavian raiders. Um, they're predominantly concentrating on hit-and-run attacks on largely undefended targets. What the Vikings learn from their early raids is that ecclesiastical centres are 
good targets to hit. They are wealthy predominantly. And it's in that search for wealth that they eventually arrive at York. By the 8th century, which is which is sort of when we're talking about, York is a bustling, thriving centre of trade and commerce. It's got everything that the Vikings are looking for in a settlement. And so by the mid-9th century, when the Vikings start to seriously consider settling in Britain, York is a very valuable place to be. The the Viking Great Army first arrives further south, it arrives in East Anglia, but they head northwards pretty quickly. And on the 1st of November, 866, the Viking Great Army attacks York. Now, the 1st of November is significant because it is All Saints Day. It's an important festival. The city would have been in a sort of celebratory mood, it's entirely possible that the city's gates were open as well to let in people from the surrounding countryside. And so it's entirely possible that the capture of York happened fairly easily. It didn't really require too much effort on the part of the Vikings. The the evidence that we have from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle particularly seems to suggest that the bloodshed came a little bit later. The bloodshed came when the Northumbrians, who were ruling in York at the time, actually tried to take the city back from the Vikings. And that's when there was carnage. Part of the Viking Great Army returns to Northumbria in 876. This is the half that comes up, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, under the Viking leader Halfdan. And he supposedly, and I'm quoting here in, in bunny ears, shared out the lands of the Northumbrians and they proceeded to plough and support themselves. So what we have here is the first evidence of Viking settlement permanent settlement in the area. There's loads of evidence to suggest that the Vikings really did pretty much make themselves at home. So York now is a Viking city, effectively, from the the later part of the 9th century. How did the city develop? Can we see evidence of that Viking period in the city today? We can. We absolutely can. We've got later sources that tell us about how the Vikings rebuilt the city of York. We can see that evidence in the ground as well. The big excavations at Coppergate, which is now the Jorvik Viking Centre. The Jorvik Viking Centre, of course, takes its name from the Viking name for the city, which becomes Jorvik. We've got excavations there that show us their houses, the houses that they built, the ways in which they used the land, the commerce that was coming through the city. York is connected through the river and through the North Sea to trade networks that span pretty much the entire globe. We even have finds from as far afield as Afghanistan found in York, all of which is feeding into this increasingly more prosperous city of York. We've also got evidence from the Coppergate side for industrial production, metalworking, working with wood, copper alloy, iron, silver, gold. They're making glass and all of the raw material for this industry is coming from miles and miles away. So this is a thriving city. It is It is a commercial city. It's a craftsman city. It's still an ecclesiastical city. The, the Archbishop of York still remains in York and they're very much working alongside the, the Scandinavian rulers at the time. So it is still a centre of importance to the church. It remains perhaps not as much as it was under the Northumbrians, but it still remains an important educational centre, a centre of learning. York remains It holds on to its status as that. It's smelly and overcrowded and slightly disgusting because they weren't the best at draining sewage from the city, things like that. But it is a bustling cosmopolitan city, all of which is bounded by these wonderful defences. But of course, that 
didn't last ever so long. There's more trouble on the horizon in the 10th century and beyond. Can you tell us what happened to the Viking settlement and then over the next century or so, how York fared? One of the problems York had is that the Viking kingdom of York saw a succession of stable and not so stable Scandinavian rulers through the 9th and 10th centuries, all of whom are ruling alongside the very powerful bishops and archbishops of York. And there are constant challenges, particularly from the Anglo-Saxon kings who belong to the line of King Alfred. Alfred created the impetus for a unified Kingdom of England and his successors spent their reigns pretty much attempting to bring that to fruition and no kingdom of England would be complete without the Viking kingdom as well as the Northumbrian kingdom that sat north of it. And so York is constantly in this state of political flux where allegiances are made, they're broken, alliances are made and then they are broken and retaliations happen. It's in this weird space until the rule of Eric Bloodaxe, who is the last Viking king of York. Eric Bloodaxe was defeated and chased out of the city pretty much and then killed in 954. After that, the Viking kingdom of York, as well as the city, they both become included into the English kingdom. What it develops into is an Anglo-Scandinavian city where you see elements of both cultures coming together and and intermingling. So we have, for instance, not in York itself, but just outside York, we have people, significant landholders, who have hybrid names. There are inscriptions that are partly in Latin and partly in Old Norse. So York and Yorkshire in general continue to have that Scandinavian connection and that Scandinavian culture. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The next really big event came a century later with the Norman Conquest in the South in 1066 and and famously... William wanted to make sure he had control of the north of England as well. How did that play out in York and the surrounding area? The, the events of 1066 are really significant for York and its its surroundings. In fact, the first two battles of 1066, none of which involve William the Conqueror, actually happen not far from York. Um, both the Battle of Fulford and the Battle of Stamford Bridge are within the environs of the city of York. And unfortunately for poor Harold Godmanson, that really lays the foundation of his response to William down in Hastings. In, in the sense that it depletes his forces and gives William the upper hand. Who knows what 1066 would have looked like if Harold Godwinson had been at full power. But William, after his conquest, turns his attention to York in 1068. So fairly quickly after 1066, I mean, considering that the events at, at Hastings take place towards the end of the year, it's barely about a year before the new king is up in York and commissioning the building of two castles on either side of the River Ouse. Clifford's Tower, which is in York, is a, is a visible reminder of the Norman castle that stood at that site. Um, the other one at Bale Hill is no longer visible. But again, a, an indication of the importance of York in 1068 is that it is the only place in the country that has two castles castles outside of London. So London and York, once again, are on par, as it were, with each other. This northern part of England, going as far back as the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, has always been slightly separate from the centres of power in the south. And William would have been rightly uncertain about his hold on this northern part of England. In 1069, local people attack the two castles without success, but they then receive help. 
in August 1069, King Sven and Estridsson of Denmark arrives with a large fleet and together with the Anglo-Saxon nobles of the area, the people of York, this force takes the city, they burn the castles, they drive the Norman occupiers away. The Normans, in response, as, as a defensive measure, they set fire to buildings that might shelter the attacking force. And this blaze spreads to such an extent that large parts of the city are destroyed, including York Minster. William is rightly very, very annoyed at this. And he pays off the Danes to leave. But then we get an absolute iron-fisted response to local rebellion, and that is known as the harrying of the North. In doing so, William stamps his mark on on the North and, and York, of course. How did York recover from that period? It's been burnt, it's been attacked. How did it grow again after the harrying of the North through the medieval period? The Normans themselves realise pretty quickly that they cannot afford to lose York. And so they start rebuilding York very, very quickly. The first structures to be rebuilt are military structures, of course. The two castles are rebuilt. But then there is a huge campaign of church building. It starts with the first Norman cathedral, sections of which um, can still be seen in the undercroft of what is today York Minster. New monasteries are established, the most significant of them being St Mary's Abbey. Again, the ruins of of the abbey are visible in um, museum gardens. St Mary's is a Benedictine monastery and the richest and largest landowners of Yorkshire are its benefactors. It is very, very significant through the entire medieval period, and it is under the Normans that it, it begins to be to be built. Very quickly after the harrying, we see parish churches being built in York, and within a few decades, we have as many as 40 stone parish churches. That gives us an indication as to how many people are living in York and have to be catered to through these parish churches. So what was, after the harrying, a broken, destroyed city, very, very quickly rebounds to being an important, bustling commercial city once more. York also, under the protection of its sheriff, has a very substantial Jewish community. And again, it's within the commercial setup that this community plays a very important role. There is an absolutely horrific incident when, at a time of widespread attacks against Jews all across Britain and Europe, a mob forces the Jews who were under the protection of the sheriff forces them to take shelter in the castle keep, which is now Clifford's Tower, and it was set on fire and the Jews were massacred. This was, of course, absolutely horrific, but the presence of the Jewish community continues in York until the expulsion of Jews from England in 1290. During this period, as you say, York is a large, thriving city, presumably still making its wealth from trade as wool in the surrounding area and so on. We can see some of that today. The, the famous shambles dates from that period, as, as well as the, the many churches. How does that period come to an end So, as you say, York is this absolutely thriving city. In fact, it's so wealthy and prosperous that in 1212, the business community of York manages to pressure King John into issuing a charter for the city where it stops being controlled by the sheriff and is headed by a mayor who is elected by York's own citizens. The wooden castles are rebuilt in stone. The beginnings of the building of York Minster, which is the Gothic cathedral in York, begins roughly about 1250. So we've got these really significant expressions of prosperity all around us in this early late 13th, early 14th century period. But then York also becomes vulnerable to attacks in the 14th century from Scotland, especially after the Battle of Bannockburn. 
You mentioned the shambles, and unfortunately, because of the 19th century slum clearances, we don't have very much more of this medieval architecture still visible in the city. But the shambles are absolutely brilliant. It was originally a a street for butchers. And as a tourist, if you visit today, you can still see outdoor shelves and hooks on which the meat would hang. It would have been a very, very smelly, stinky place. The decline of York's prosperity really begins towards the later medieval period. We've got a a sort of economic contraction that takes place in the later sort of 15th century. And there are still attempts by the sort of city fathers of York to maintain its image as it were, to put on a brave face and say, no, we're still we're still doing well, we're still doing all right. All through this time, all through this period of wonderful flourishing and then economic decline, the Minster is still being built. The York Minster, the largest Gothic cathedral north of the Alps, is eventually completed in 1472. The, the cloth industry, which is basically the mainstay of its economy by this point, has gradually moved to other parts of Yorkshire, partly because York still has this independent status. Other parts of Yorkshire, like Halifax, like Wakefield and Leeds, are less controlled, have less regulation, and so merchants go elsewhere. It's really ironic that part of what makes York in the early medieval period then starts to become a problem in in the later medieval period. And then, of course, York is on the wrong side of the War of the Roses. So when we come into the early modern period with the Tudors, um, York is at its lowest ebb for a very, very long time. So how does it emerge from that low point? Henry VIII... Good old Henry, all while he is dissolving the monasteries and taking large parts of York's ecclesiastical wealth out of the city, he also ends up establishing York as an administrative and judicial centre for his kingdom. That's the King's Council in York. It's housed initially in the abbot's house at St Mary's Abbey and eventually it becomes its own complex, which is the King's Manor. And King's Manor still stands today. In fact, that's where I work because it is now a University of York building. The King's Council, its, its purpose is to mete out justice, to hear debt cases and cases of civil offence and to enforce religious observance, particularly making sure that everyone was following Protestantism. And then under Henry's daughter, Elizabeth, we also get the High Commission Court for the Northern Province of York in 1561. So the council and court together bring in government institutions. And as a consequence, they bring in large numbers of people. And these people need to be fed, they need to be housed, they need to be provided with the basics, all of which brings trade into the city. York once again becomes this hub of commerce, but it is commerce particularly directed at the people coming in for the court and and the council. It's starting to become the tourist city that it is today. <laughs> that that begins in the early modern period. We've also got, as part of the English Reformation, we've got the persecution of the Catholic Christian community in York, as it was elsewhere in the country as well. And one of the significant figures of this sort of persecution is St. Margaret Clitheroe, who was executed in 1586 for harbouring priests. Her shrine actually stands in the shambles, so you can go and visit it if you like. But there is another Catholic who is intimately connected with York, and that is Guy Fawkes, who tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament in 1605. Guy Fawkes was 
was born in York. He was baptised at St. Michael the Belfry, which is a church near York Minster that still stands. By about the end of the 1500s, there are more than 60 inns in the city. So you, you can just picture the number of people coming in and out, people requiring temporary accommodation. And honestly, sometimes walking through the city centre of York on a busy summer's day, you can totally imagine exactly how it was all those centuries ago because it would have felt the same crowded streets noises everywhere people requiring food and drink and and accommodation so yeah york starts its journey as a tourist city way back when of course later in that century in the 17th century england as a whole britain was riven by the civil war how did york play into that period Um, Sadly for York, it finds itself on the wrong side of history yet again. So pick the wrong side in the War of the Roses, pick the wrong side in the Civil War as well, in the English Civil War. Charles I has a particular affinity for York while he is king. And in 1642, he establishes his court. He runs away from London and establishes his court in York for about six months. Even after the king leaves, York is still a royalist stronghold and it's besieged and eventually captured by the parliamentarians. But it slowly starts to rebound after the Civil War. By about 1660, it's the third largest city in England again, after after London and Norwich. So the impact isn't that devastating. Interestingly, since we were talking about um, Catholic persecution, the Bar Convent is founded in 1686, which is the oldest surviving convent in England. And it is is established in York in secret because of existing anti-Catholic laws. York continues to be this city that is part of the mainstream, but has these sort of subservient streaks underlying Moving on into the next couple of centuries, how did the age of industry affect York? In many ways, the age of industry sort of leaves York behind in many ways. At at, at the time that industrial centres like Manchester, like Newcastle, are rapidly expanding, York doesn't see any of that it, it still is predominantly a commercial city, but it's also a commercial city that is still in the wake of the court and, and, and the, the Council of the North. It is still focused predominantly on, on luxury goods. And so York in this early industrial period is a social centre. It's a genteel place, as it were. We've got new trades like bookbinding and bookselling and pipe making and cabinet making. It, it, it's where the gentry came to sort of enjoy themselves, where the nobility came to enjoy themselves because London was too far away, basically. And so we've got assembly rooms for dancing, we've got a mansion house, a race course, all of the pursuits. It's the playground for the wealthy, basically, in the early period. And some of that you can see in the Georgian buildings that spring up in York. It's really with the railways in the mid-1800s that York starts to industrialise. So when George Stevenson began to plan his line from Newcastle to London, the person who was called York's railway king, George Hudson, he convinced Stevenson to build the line through York rather than going straight to Leeds. So Newcastle to York, to York to Leeds rather than just straight. And what that does is it brings people into York faster than the stagecoaches ever have managed to do. In 1840, we have the first train that runs direct from York to London. By the 1850s, there are 13 trains a day. By the end of the 1800s, there are nearly 300 trains a day. That is the scale of the expansion that takes place because of the railways coming through York. Tourism, of course, boomed. It's a commercial advantage. Finance becomes a big part of the city's economy. Banks 
and and insurance companies are born where we also get heavy industry the manufacture of engines and carriages wagons and carriage works everything that services the railways gets a start starts getting established at york and between the sort of 1840s when it first starts through to about the early 1900s this expansion is absolutely immense by the end of the 19th century five and a half thousand railway employees lived and worked in york and that is huge for a city that is sort of just about this size also with the railways and with this this sort of flourishing of heavy industry we get confectionery and cocoa three entrepreneurs joseph terry joseph roundtree and mary craven all sort of independently bring the manufacture of chocolate into the city again we've got the railways we've still got the navigable river ooze it's a great place for manufacturing to set up a manufacturing unit but what is particularly fascinating to me about york's confectionery industry is that unlike the railways they provided employment for women and so york is not a city where only one half of the population is gainfully employed. So th- the history of confectionery York is actually really quite interesting and there is an entire attraction called York's Chocolate Story that you can visit where you can you can sort of see the way in which the the industry develops in the city and the fact that Terry's after making their lovely chocolate orange decided to make a chocolate apple it just baffles me that they managed to, that, that they thought that that would be a good idea but there we are. So yeah, so so this is this this is what's happening in York, and alongside the the prosperity that heavy industry brings, we've also got a blossoming cultural scene. There's an entire Victorian street at the Castlegate Museum in York, where you can you can see sort of what Victorian York looked like, and you'll be able to see these cultural elements there. By the 20th century, York is rapidly expanding into its outer suburbs because housing is required for factory workers. So York is booming, basically. So in the 20th century, York continued as a centre of population and industry. It was hit to a certain extent by the Blitz in the Second World War. How much damage did that do? And, And can we see any evidence of that today? Or is it basically all rebuilt? There's not much damage that you can still see. It's mostly all been rebuilt, but you can visit the sites that were damaged. So the Guildhall, St. Martin's on Coney Street, the Bar Convent, all of these. Interestingly, even though it was supposed to be a raid on historical centres, that particular uh, air raid on, on York, it was targeted more at the railway line and the carriage works and the airfields uh, around York. Just absolutely, astonishingly, the Minster wasn't hit. It is the most obvious target from the air. But there is clearly an argument to be made that they were concentrating more on the strategic targets in York rather than trying to do damage to the pretty bits of the city, as it were. Today, of course, York is known as a a destination for tourists and for history buffs particularly. I'd like to ask you now to share five sites in York that you think reveal something about the city's past and explain what they can tell us. Right. (laughs) It's really difficult to pick five. York has absolutely so much. I'm going to start with York Minster. It is absolutely unmissable. It is a stunning piece of architecture. It is truly testament to what the human spirit can create under the right circumstances. It represents the prosperity of York in the medieval period in so many ways. And there's so much interesting about the Minster, both inside and outside. There's also an absolutely fascinating history lying under the Minster. And so a trip to the Undercroft will show you the layers of York history. You can see parts of the Roman Basilica that existed on the site. You can see parts of the old Norman Minster that stood on the site. There's absolutely ages of history to discover under the Minster. And of course, if you've got the lung power to climb its tower... It provides the most fabulous views of the city of York. One of the things that you do get a sense for 
when you're up at that height is where previous iterations of the city have been. So Yorkminster is is definitely to my mind, the most significant historical site um, in the city. The other historical site I would say is incredibly significant is what is currently called Clifford's Tower. It stands at the site of the old Norman castle and it has recently been refurbished. What Clifford's Tower always brings home to me is just how strategically important that particular site was. The Normans were very clever. The Romans were clever with where they chose to put their fortress, but the Normans were equally clever, I think, with with where they established their castles. Again, you can see that in the landscape from the top of Clifford's Tower. The other sites I've chosen are museums rather than living historical sites, but they do hold a lot of York's history. The Jorvik Viking Centre, it stands on the site of the largest excavation in the city, the Coppergate Excavation, and beneath a glass floor you can see the, the foundations of Viking Age buildings, you can see the sorts of constructions that lie under the surface. But they also have an absolutely amazing reconstruction of Viking Age life based on the evidence that has been found in the the Coppergate excavation and, of course, informed by other sources. The other museum that I would highly recommend is the Yorkshire Museum. You can wander through the museum gardens and see the ruins of St Mary's Abbey, which, which will give you a sense of just how big and wealthy that institution was. I mean, I've been going on about it being a Benedictine Abbey and being incredibly wealthy and then being drained into Henry the, Henry VIII's coffers. But really, it, just walking through the gardens and seeing the ruins, you'll get a sense of just how big and powerful this institution was. But the museum itself houses artefacts from all across York's history. So if you're interested in, you know, looking at things like the head pot of Julia Domna or looking at what the hair of a Roman girl might have looked like or what Viking Age shoes might have looked like, the Yorkshire Museum is is the place to go. And then finally, I don't think any visit to York is complete without walking the city walls. They are such an important part of, of York's history and they really give you a sense of what the medieval and the pre-medieval city of York might have looked like. Finally, Pragya, could you share one piece of advice for anyone planning a visit to York? Ah, gosh, wear stout shoes and be prepared to walk and walk and walk. York is a walking city. You can jump on a bus for, you know, things like the Terry's factory or the Nestle factory or even the railways. But if you're interested in the Roman and medieval city of York, there is no other way to do it other than on foot. So make sure you've got good shoes. That's a terrific tip. That was Prague Vora. Thanks, Prague, and thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.